Good evening, everyone. Please open with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to read the whole chapter together. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give, or I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates." The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are grateful that we get to come again as your people to your word. We're grateful that we get to study the life of this man, Abram, and what his life means for us. But, Lord, more than that, we're grateful that in your word tonight, you will reveal to us your character, who you are, your mercy, your patience, your love. And we pray, Lord, through your word that you would encourage us this evening. Amen. As I mentioned this morning, last week I attended the Solar Five Conference in Joburg, and it really was a time of great refreshing in my life. Got to sit under uh, great teaching, Conrad and Bearware was there, and, and he did an excellent job. I got to meet other pastors, the pastors. There was encouraging fellowship, and I even got to catch up with old friends in the ministry. 
Uh, I left the conference feeling really fired up to serve the Lord in joy and with purpose. Well, the day right after the conference, I woke up to a, a small problem. One of my accounts had uh, double charged, been double debited, and it caused another account to bounce. And so I spent that entire morning on the phone trying to sort things out. And really what happened was I came crashing down from my mountaintop experience to reality. But the problems of life, little problems, some bigger problems, they don't go away just because you go up the mountain. They're happy to wait for you patiently to come down. And so coming down the mountain, I saw the golden calf there, and I threw down my tablets in anger. I spent a, a grumpy morning slumped in self-pity. And by noon that day, I had to apologize to everyone in my house. It's the frustrating reality about our hearts that so soon after deep experiences of His goodness and grace, so soon after victories in our walk with Christ, we can find ourselves in that slump of numb despair or sometimes churning doubts. We're not unique in this. It's true of the great men of the faith, even in Scripture. Men like Elijah, and you know the, the story, the showdown on the literal mount, Mount Carmel up there, where he, he saw so overwhelming a manifestation of the glory of God, so convincing a victory over false religion. Well, moments later, he's running from Jezebel for his life. He slumps down in the, in the desert, and he asks God, take my life from me. He's convinced that he's all alone in his service of Yahweh. And even in Abraham, the father of the faith, we say, we see in him the ups and downs of faith and doubting. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, notes the curve of Abraham's faith graphs unevenly. So it was faith that made him leave Ur, believing the word of God, to go to a land that he knew nothing about. And in faith, he set up in that land places of worship. He was Yahweh's man through and through, a countercultural presence. But then famine hits, and we see a shaking of his faith, that disastrous trip down to Egypt where his faith wobbles. But God gives Abram grace. Abram, he gives him grace that he doesn't deserve and brings him back to the land. And we see Abram come back a somewhat humbled man, evident in his dealings with Lot. And so in chapter 13, we see his faith there again and the way that he was generous towards Lot. In, Gen in Genesis chapter 14, we see his faith as he chases after the kings of the east who have come and captured Lot. We see his faith when he is blessed by Melchizedek, refusing to be tied to the wicked king of Sodom by accepting any spoils of war. He will ever be Yahweh's man. And so the amazing thing as we come to chapter 15 is we see an Abram again unsure about the promises of God. And so his life becomes for us again very helpful as we seek to live the life of faith. And it's not because Abraham had everything figured out, but it's because of the revelation of God that we see in this story. God meets Abram. He comes to meet him in the doubts of his heart. And may he likewise meet us this evening. I'm just going to walk through the story under two headings, two sections to this chapter. The first section, it asks something about Abram, whether he is able at this crossroads in his life to move forward in faith. 
And the second section asks something about God, if He can, in fact, be trusted. Genesis 15 is a very important chapter in the Bible. Two headings, simple trust, number one, and then number two, absolute trustworthiness. So let's look, number one, at the simple trust of Abram. Despite the victory that was won in chapter 14, the words of promise and blessing spoken by Melchizedek, nothing actually has changed in Abraham's situation. He's no closer to seeing the fulfillment of the promise. Sarai, his wife, is still barren. The adrenaline maybe has worn off after the victory. Maybe there's even some fear that has crept in. Will these kings that I've defeated retaliate in the future? God knows exactly what Abram needs in this moment after his mountaintop experience is fading. And so verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. That word, the noun, shield, has the same root as the verb we saw in chapter 14, verse 20, where Melchizedek says in his blessing to Abram, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. It's the same root, shield, and that word delivered. God is reminding Abram here, I gave you victory then because I am your shield. Do not fear tomorrow that the results are going to be any different. I didn't fail you yesterday, and I'm not going to start failing you tomorrow. Abram had refused, remember, the spoils of war, saying to Sodom's king in chapter 14 from 22, he said, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. It's a line Abram draws in the sand. I'm not going to put my trust in the world. I'm looking to Yahweh to satisfy me. And, and God confirms the rightness of that decision here in this passage. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So Abram has turned his back on the world. But now we see here still in, their li- in his life there is the wrestle of faith. Verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. There is intensity in Abram's choice of words. We're meant to see and not downplay the disappointment in his heart. He says, I continue childless. And the Hebrew phrase here, often, though not exclusively, is used in reference to barrenness, but it literally means, I am one who is walking stripped. It carries the idea of a person being laid bare, destitute, and in despair. And you might feel, we might say, that Abram is being quite dramatic in the way that he's speaking to God, but the same is true of you and I, isn't it, in our spiritual low points? Despite all that God's already done, all that He's already given Abram's saying, I am empty. I have no nothing. I have nothing. I have no heir. Will it all just pass to my servant? Will my name cease from the face of the earth? And this is after God had promised to establish his name. Still, he is speaking in humility, in submission. O Lord God, he says, 
that phrase. It couples the Hebrew Adonai, which means master or Lord, with the, the personal name of God. I believe the NIV captures well actually the sense here. Sovereign Lord is what he's saying. So even as he brings his complaint, Abram is an example for us, as we saw this morning as well in that situation, the, the example of Job. What do we do when we battle to hope in the promises of God? What do we do? Well, first, we acknowledge that it is only from God that we can find soul-satisfying reward. The world cannot suffice. What it gives is not enough. God must be the giver of our good. Then we come humbly and honestly before the Father with the cares of our hearts. And that's what Abram does. See, there's a difference between being stuck in your own mind and just complaining about your life. There's a difference between that and humbly but honestly coming to God with your cares. Even with strong laments like we see in the Psalms. Why, God, or how long? Actually being vulnerable and speaking in reverence to our God. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God invites the faith that desperately clings to Him and won't relent. And bringing concern to him. We might consider Abraham impudent for questioning again the promises of God. But God actually rewards Abram's honesty here. His vulnerable appeal with a response that is in verse 4 and 5 simply stunning and wonderful. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God is reordering Abram's perspective, bringing his problems into the light of God's own power and majesty. Lift your eyes, Abram. Count the stars if you can count them. Every one of them is right where I put it. Every one of them has its own name, its own place. I breathe out stars and planets, and you think that your situation threatens my promises. What is your childlessness next to my power? Child of God, tonight, what situation in your life can possibly stop God from accomplishing the purposes He has for your life. God revealed to Abraham for all of us to see in these verses that the same wisdom and power that went into the creation of the stars is at work in the events and the details of Abraham's life, the lives of his children. Abraham, I'm, I'm not spinning out here trying to figure out the best possible plan B. There are things that we face, we all face in life, that we would rather not. We would not choose for ourselves. And we know every day the reality of our own weaknesses, our own failures that bring trouble to our lives. The path that we walk is filled with sorrows that are tied to the reality of living in a fallen world. But in all of it, God's promises to us are not threatened or endangered. We can trust in Him. 
with God's words, we come to a crossroads in the story of Abram's life, a crossroads in Scripture. What will he do? Genesis 15 verse 6 is one of the most important in all of the Old Testament. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram simply believes God, that God is willing, and he is able to make good on what he has promised. Nothing has changed in his circumstances. There's just a conviction in his heart confirmed about the character of God. It's not a perfect trust. We're going to see him questioning again right after this. But his faith is real and it was pleasing to God and wonderfully for Abraham, wonderfully for all mankind. It says God counts that simple faith as righteousness. There's no action, no action of Abram's that God weighs up and says, yes, before me now, yes, you are righteous in my sight. If Abram were to be so assessed by God, he, like all of us, would never be able to stand. He wouldn't be able to stand. Why? Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Man has ever only, we we see this in Abraham's story, that man has ever only been brought into right relationship with God by faith. Is this your firm hope tonight? Eternally, I am secure in Christ alone because of what He has done on my behalf. And if that is your security, if your security rests not in your action but in Christ's, what reason could you possibly have to fear tomorrow? So we are blessed to see Abram's simple response of trust. And number two, I think even more so, we're able to see the absolute trustworthiness of God in this passage. Abram has one more question for God. I believe it's a question that is drawn out by God intentionally in order to set something up, the making of this covenant and a display of the glorious character of God. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, How am I to know that I shall possess it? How can I know that you'll keep your promise? Abram is pressing God for a sign, a down payment. Verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now what God commands in this passage and what's about to happen seems very strange, doesn't it, to our modern ears? But there's a context to what's going on, something that Abram would have understood. God and Abram are about to make a covenant. Now, when we make an agreement or a contract, we use pen and ink, don't we? They had a more graphic and a more descriptive way of making covenants. That's why literally in the Hebrew, it's to cut a covenant. 
Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Literally, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Both terms are used in the Old Testament to indicate the divine presence of God. But there's a specific parallel that should be of interest to us here. In verse 7, the way God addresses Abram, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That is monumental language. Later, God would use almost exactly the same formula when he's speaking to Israel on the day that he made a covenant with them. Exodus 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And what marked God's presence on that day when he made a covenant with Israel? It was terror and darkness as well on the mountain. Where else is divinely wrought darkness present when God is cutting a covenant with man? The cross. I believe what happens for Abram's benefit here in this story is included in Scripture, not just for him. It's written first for Israel as well. Remember that this is written to the the people of God. It's written for Israel in the wilderness to encourage them to faithfulness as they reflect on what God had done in their past and bringing them out of Egypt and as they walk in the wilderness. And more than that, I believe the covenant God makes with Abram is, is meant to point us to something else to the character of this covenant-making God, a character that never changes, and to point to a greater covenant to come when the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world gave His life as a ransom for us. This covenant made with Abram points to that covenant. It points to the cross. So first, God is going to speak to Abram in the darkness, and he gives him truth here to to stabilize him, to stabilize Abram. It's truth as well to encourage Israel that everything that has happened in their history happened in accordance with God's timeline. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So to Abram, God is saying, you know, though you you wait, Abram, and I know it seems, you live in the, the tension of promises that seem slow, but my timing is perfect in these things. I have purpose in the delay. Know my heart in this. Long suffering towards the Amorites. I will not bring judgment an hour before the right time. Kent Hughes in his commentary says, God was revealing to Abram that he is patient beyond human calculation. Long-suffering is God's modus operandi in history. To Israel, God is saying, the suffering in Egypt was not a mistake. It was part of the divine plan, part of my purposes. And we see in the book of Exodus how God would glorify His name through the judgments upon Egypt. In that forge, in Egypt, He would form His people whom He would call out to Himself, a people who would be able forever to remember what God had done there, remember the salvation He wrought, and know where salvation is to be found. And to us, 
as to Abram and to Israel, God speaks important truth in these verses, that suffering precedes glory. Your difficult circumstances do not threaten God's glorious purposes. They are His means to His glorious end. As Paul said to the church in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But even more significant than what God said to Abram is what God did. God speaks and then He acts. Abram obeyed God's command. He cut the animals in half. He laid them in parallel so blood would flow between them, this stream of blood. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land. Again, this practice of covenant making seems strange to us, but it was understood in Abram's day. Two parties would create this channel of blood between the cut animals, and they would walk through it, and that blood would sprinkle onto their garments a very graphic symbol, a very strong statement, binding themselves to the conditions of the covenant. They were saying, by walking through that blood, may this be my fate if I do not hold up my end of the covenant. John Currid in his commentary says, the purpose of the ritual is to invoke a curse. The participants are in effect inviting God to cut them in two like the animals if they do not keep their covenant promises. In Jeremiah 34, for example, God is speaking about judgment that is coming through the Babylonian exile. He, he says in that chapter, they'd made a covenant with God in the past where He had promised to save them from the Babylonians if they released their Hebrew slaves in accordance with His law. Jeremiah 34 is a sign and seal of that covenant. The people had marched through the pieces of the animal that were cut in two, like in this passage. They then disobeyed, and Jeremiah said, judgment is coming. But with this background in mind, we have to see something in this passage, something that is stunning, absolutely stunning. Abraham has asked, how can I know that you'll keep your promise to me? And I, I believe, you know, Abraham has believed God. He's trusted God. I don't think he's asking this so much because he believes that God is not trustworthy. But I, And I say that because I know my own heart when it comes to the promises of God. We can doubt the promises of God because we know that as fallen and sinful people, we don't deserve those promises. We don't deserve the good that God offers in His Word. And so you see this set up, the animals cut, the river of blood, and this is what you might expect the passage to say. God saying, okay, Abraham, you want a sign. Here are my promises. Here are, this is my side. Here's everything that I might do for you. And here's everything, Abram, that I expect from you. If you keep up your end, I'll keep up my end. Walk through the blood and let's make a covenant. But that is not what happens. God has put Abram in, into a sleep, and it isn't Abram that passes through, but who? God himself. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. A firepot and a flaming torch are symbolic of God's presence, as was the dark 
Symbolically, it is Yahweh, not Abram, who passes through the blood. It is God who says, in effect, may the fate of the animal be my fate if I do not uphold my promise. In a covenant like this, you would never expect it to be God to pass through as if the fate of the sacrifice could possibly become his fate. You need to see this, this covenant that God makes with Abraham. It is a promise that God is making unilaterally. God is taking full covenant responsibility upon himself. It was a covenant not tied to Abram's action or strength or obedience, but to God's own faithfulness. And how does God keep his promise to Abram? How does God keep his promises to us? In response to Abram's weakness, in response to the failure of loyalty of his own people, he takes that very fate upon himself, doesn't he? Ian Dugwood in his commentary says, By what figure could God have demonstrated his commitment more graphically to Abram? How could it have been displayed more vividly? The only way would have been for the figure to become reality. For the ever-living God to take on human nature and taste death in the place of the covenant-breaking children of Abram. And that is precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. On the cross, the covenant curse fell completely on Jesus so that the guilty ones who placed their trust in Him might experience the blessings of the covenant. Jesus bore the punishment for our sins so that God might be our God and we might be His people. In our darkness, when we were asleep in sin, Christ paid for our faithlessness by His own blood. It was His flesh that was torn for us, His death, that we might have life. As Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. What is it? that marks those times of discouragement in our lives, those times that give rise to doubts? Is it not that we have lost sight of Christ's finished work on our behalf? Is it not that we find ourselves sometimes resting, not in Him, but seeking in our own strength to secure a bright future for ourselves? We must, church, fix our eyes on the cross and let that be our whole confidence. Abram's life is not without wavering. It's not without doubt. After this, he's still going to laugh in the face of God. He's still going to repeat old sins. But God committed himself to this outcome of blessing in Abram's life as Christ through the cross committed himself to our salvation, to our eternal good. Christ did no wrong. He was a spotless lamb without sin. And yet he walked that path of his own shed blood to give us life. Abram didn't walk the path. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and the same can be true of you and I. Is your life secure today in the unfailing love of God through the death of Christ? That is all we need, isn't it? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we glory in your sacrifice on our behalf. We worship you and we praise you 
We love you for what you have done for us. We do not deserve the promises of Scripture. We do not deserve the promise of life. We do not deserve the promise that we will dwell forever with you. You have accomplished all this through your blood on the cross. And we are grateful. I pray that you help us to rest in that truth, to be confident in that truth, and to trust you in our day to day, we ask. Amen.